Hi, I'm Dr Andrea Carson. This is the Crisis in Communication podcast series for La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm not going to give you a question. Can you stay counter? You are fake news. To talk about facts, it's a big challenge. You'll hear a lively analysis on problems for democracy in the digital age. The Prime Minister must and will be heard. Subscribe where you are listening or on your favourite podcast app. I'd rather be dead in a ditch. What on earth is the point of a further delay? Welcome to the new Crisis in Communication Latrobe podcast. It features Latrobe's political communications academics talking with experts about a variety of big issues in politics and the media today. In the time of populist politics, with the rise of Trump and Brexit and disruptions to old media, this podcast series explores themes of communication crisis. The six-part series explores problems from around the world of leadership and language, political polarisation, populism, resistance and silence of minority groups. This episode in the series features Gerald Roach and Adrian Jones. So we are discussing issues of political communication, in particular the issues related to silences and silencing. A good way to start is by thinking about perhaps one of the great Australian academics commenting on silences and silencing in Australian culture. Yeah, so I just wanted to read a little quote out from um, W.H. Stanner's 1968 Boyer Lecture, which was titled The Great Australian Silence. And in this lecture, he was talking about the way in which Australian history had excluded Indigenous people, the way that Aboriginal people, uh, the story of Aboriginal people had been written out of the Australian story. And I think uh, particularly for Australian listeners, it's a good way to get our heads around what silence is and and how it works. In the lecture, he went through a, a list of contemporary Australian history books, looked at how each of them had excluded uh, Indigenous people from the story of the Australian nation. And then after surveying a couple of these books, he said, I need not extend the list. A partial survey is enough to let me make the point that inattention on such a scale cannot possibly be explained by absent-mindedness. It is a structural matter, a view from a window which has been carefully placed to exclude a whole quadrant of the landscape. What may well have begun as simple forgetting of other possible views turned into a habit and over time into something like a cult of forgetfulness practiced on a national scale. What I really like about that way of thinking about silence and thinking about forgetfulness, well, first of all, the way that he visualizes it as a window placed to exclude a whole quadrant of the landscape it really helps give you a picture of how silence works, which is something quite difficult to do. The second thing is is that he looks at silence as being a structural matter, something that is built into our ways of perceiving and talking about things. And the third thing that he brings up in that quote is that, you know, silence is often deliberate. It's often aimed at giving a particular view of the world, a particular view of reality. So we say... So he's really showing that silence here does something. It achieves an end. And I think those are some of the points that we want to pick up in our discussion of silence today. 
And I wanted to add an, a contrasting example of, of the kind of cult of forgetfulness. And it's to do with a, a speech that everyone kind of hears again and again on Anzac Day. And it's the speech of Ataturk to the Anzac mothers. So the great war hero of the Turkish resistance to Allied invasion in 1915 is acknowledging the grief and the, the kind of honour of all the combatants, enemy and alien. And there's a strange history to this um, speech that everyone knows and everyone quotes on Anzac Day. And, and the history is that it wasn't reported until 1953, even though uh, Ataturk had died in 1938. So there is a kind of Stanner-like cult of forgetfulness here, that Ataturk, the ageing warrior, was thinking again about the place of grief and wanted to say something about that was generous and magnanimous about the warriors on all sides, including his own side. But it's also clear that it wasn't reported at the time mm. and that people at the time in 1934 or 35 didn't really want to hear that from their great leader at Mustafa Kemal mm -hmm. Ataturk. So they suppressed the speech and the evidence is clear, I think, now that the people who were supposed to give the speech didn't give it. Can you talk a little bit about who was it who did the silencing in this case? Because this is one thing that's really important to think about in terms of how silence is produced is that someone is always producing that silence. So who was it? Who wanted that speech not to be heard at that time? Well, I think it's, it's fairly clear that we know that Mustafa Kemal asked his interior minister, a man called Shukul Kaya, to give the speech on his behalf in 1934 or 1935. Even the date is unclear. Mm -hmm. That um, Shukukaya put it in his pocket and did not give the speech. <laughs> and he remembers saying to Mustafa Kemal, don't, don't say that. Why would we honour the invaders of our country? Right. And so, um, so he suppressed the speech, but then remembers in a different Turkey. And so the silencing is part of a kind of consensus of, of thinkers at the time that they didn't want the great leader to say that. So it was kind of a consensus decision that was made by the political elites to silence that speech then. And if we think about silencing as producing a particular kind of picture, the picture that they were trying to produce was one of uh, – uh, an independent, proud nation. And then that later had to be reconsidered in the context of a Turkey that was much more cosmopolitan, much more integrated with other nations around them. Indeed. And that kind of so they were they were opposing what they thought was that the political incorrectness of their own leader. They wanted to emphasize nationalism and anti-imperialism. Mm-hmm. But the leader was now starting to see things in slightly different terms. And I think there are some parallels here with the kind of discussion, particularly on the conservative side of politics, about the suppression of speech. Yeah, I think one thing that's really interesting about those kind of debates is how loudly people are able to decry their being silenced, right? To, to, to me, that's fairly strongly indicative of the fact that they're not being silenced at all. But it also gives us an idea of the way that silencing as a technique of political control has such potency that as soon as we 
uh, bring up the topic of silence and make accusations of silencing, it touches a political nerve, so to speak. It gives us a sense of injustice. And so what's really interesting there is that you have an association between silencing and a sense of injustice, which is so widespread, but at the same time, very widespread use of silencing in all of our political communications to achieve particular ends. Indeed, and I think the notion of consensus in, a, in, in political life, that there is in some cases a sense that the, um, the ruling consensus should be able to be contested in some way. Maybe I might take us on a bit of a theoretical turn and talk about how one particular historian has talked about silencing and how it's achieved. The person I want to talk about is uh, Michel Rolf-Trio, who has written a wonderful book called Silencing the Past, where he really provides us with a model, I guess, on how silencing works. So Trio was talking about the Haitian Revolution um, in the 1791 to 1804, which was kind of the first successful anti-colonial, anti-slavery rebellion in world history. And he talks about the way that this has been written out of historical narratives, particularly historical narratives of progress, of the enlightenment, of the march of democracy, of the gradual abolition of slavery and so on. And he, he talks about four different processes of silencing, which I think are relevant not only to history, but also to media and political communication in general. So he talks about the way that historical silence can be produced through the failure to create sources, the failure to record things as they happen. He talks about the way that silence is produced by the failure to include particular sources in the archive. So something might get recorded, but it doesn't get collected and stored and housed and made accessible. Even then, if a historical event gets recorded and gets placed in the archive, it may not be extracted from the archive and worked into a narrative, a historical narrative. So even though we know something happened, that information is accessible, it doesn't become part of a particular historical story. And in that way, it can also be silenced. Uh, finally, we have a fourth process, which is that even if an event makes it into the record, makes it into the archive, is incorporated into a narrative, that narrative might be left out of the greater corpus of history. So the way that narratives are collected together and told as representative of what really happened. And I think really in the age that we're living in, that last one of making it into the corpus is particularly important because the, the way that media operates now Something might be reported, it might be recognized as actually happening, but it's really not until it's repeated for the millionth time that it actually becomes true. It's not until it becomes part of a broader common sense that something has sort of made it over the threshold of silence. Well, that view certainly conforms with my, I mean, I'm an older historian and, you know, when I learned about the French Revolution and I've taught about the French Revolution, for the first 20 years of my career teaching about these things, we would not have discussed. It was not archived, it was not discussed. Mm -hmm. The revolution in Haiti, it's only in the last 15 to 20 years probably that it has been discussed. Mm -hmm. So the reasons why that is the case are really interesting to interrogate. So if we think about silencing as producing a particular view of the world and then 
that silence gradually being undone, that requires basically a change in worldview to take place. So could you maybe talk us through a little bit about the way that people thought about the French Revolution and the way that they think about it now that it has enabled them to include that previously silent aspect of history? Well, I think there's the idea of centre and periphery, That so that the centre, the French Revolution, of course, is French and it's Parisian, and so anything else is just a kind of sideshow. What speeches emphasise has to do with presumptions about power, which are really important in understanding the world. I'm also thinking, though, of silence in another way, that sometimes it's like a toddler's silence or a school student's silence. That is, it's as a weapon of the weak, that sometimes confronting great power and domination to be, remain silent is a really important kind of countermeasure, a, a kind of passive resistance. You might have no power whatsoever, but as a toddler, you can remain silent or you can bellow uh, loudly. You've got two alternatives there. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about, I was thinking about this in a, in a way that sometimes silence is an act of resistance, passive resistance, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking of a great um, novel from the Second World War in, in France in, in the summer of 1941. Vercors wrote this wonderful novel protesting the German occupation of France called The Silence of the Sea, La Silence de la Mer. And he basically told a story about how a, a really quite attractive sympathetic German officer is billeted on a small provincial family and they have to host this guy. And he's a very uh, Francophile German intellectual and he paints a picture for them of Franco-German cooperation which looks very similar in a way to the European Union, mm-hmm. you know, that the great features of French culture will be combined with German industry and Uh, and this will create a new Europe. But the response of the family for the novelist, and the novelist went under a pen name called Vercors, he said was silence, that they would say nothing to this German officer, (laughs) absolutely nothing. They would feed him as they were required to do, they would give him the bedroom, but they would say nothing. And this was an act of resistance, that you cannot dominate us, invade us, occupy us, mm-hmm. and expect us to respond with generosity. Right. And there are some strong kind of post-colonial heritage issues here too yep. with, with Indigenous politics as well that we're still playing out in our own culture. But the novel kind of explores that sometimes not to say anything, not to participate, right. is an act of resistance, a weapon of the weak to use the great anthropologist James Scott's kind of view. And this was a good example of it in in the French resistance. So they were saying, don't collaborate in any way. This is Mm -hmm. after six or seven months after Marshal Pétain, the leader of occupied France, had had announced that they would collaborate with the German rulers in October 1940. But in the summer of 1941, the novelist is saying, Don't speak with these people. Behave with dignity and silence. And that really shows us one of the interesting things about silence and the way that we interpret it as a form of communication is the way in which it can be so flexible and malleable and to understand and 
analyze and interpret silences, there's really two layers of challenge that we have to address. One is simply the challenge of realizing that the silence is there, right? Of finding out what has been excluded. And then the second one is the challenge of interpreting that silence within the context that it exists in. We need to be able to think about well, is that silence an act of exclusion? Or is that silence an act of resistance? In certain circumstances, that becomes relatively easy. If we look at, for example, a state excluding particular voices from public discourses, then it's fairly easy to see that that's not an act of resistance, that that's an act of domination and control. But one thing that makes it more complicated in contemporary media age is that when the voices in the media become so much more diverse and fragmented, is a person on Twitter with a million followers instantly in a position of power and authority? Is their silencing immediately an act of domination? Or are they engaging in the politics of no platforming? Are they excluding powerful and harmful voices? Can silence be another tool of resistance in that way? So as a means of political communication, I think it's getting harder and harder increasingly to pass the meaning of silences and to identify them as well. We're living in an age of social media influences mm -hmm. and spin doctors behind political leaders. And so the whole uh, thrust of that work is to advance an agenda, to try to manipulate opinion and to, to curb some speech and to advance other speech. Mm -hmm. One of the things that has really changed in recent years in terms of political communication is that the role of silencing has really uh, shifted to the position of the listener rather than the communicator. We can now, on platforms like Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and so on, choose to silence people simply by not listening to them. So we're really coming into an age where the command economy of a centralized media platform excluding people and silencing their voices is giving way to a situation where we're basically being asked to silence particular people to choose who we're listening to and who we're not. Or we're asking them, we're kind of building our own ghettos where we, we only talk to people we like, mm -hmm. we can construe the world in a homogeneous way. And this is a problem. And it's a problem for political leaders as well, because sometimes I think leadership requires you to break a silence, change a silence, mm -hmm. redefine a silence. And, and that was a problem in Ataturk's case. He felt that in the moment, in the years of Turkey moving closer towards possible involvement in a Second World War, he wanted to build a closer relationship with the Western powers and he saw the commemoration of the kind of Gallipoli as a way to do that by showing some magnanimity. But that is the challenge of leadership in an age of kind of echo chambers and opinion ghettos where we only talk to people that we like. If I could just briefly advocate for opinion ghettos, I suppose, and talking about the way that silencing in the sense of turning off particular voices can actually advance political projects in some senses. So if you think about, for example, people who are consistently the target of hate speech, 
of you know misogynistic speech of racism and the debilitating effects that that has on pursuing sort of constructive political movement building then the capacity to sort of just turn off those hateful voices to produce a rehabilitating silence that can also be productive in some senses yes and i think when i think about your own work gerald about the minority languages in western china or tibet you mm-hmm. know in a sense there is there there are some problems there that perhaps you could discuss yeah sure so my my own work has been dealing with a particular form of silencing which is um looking at how in conversations around the politics of language uh, in Tibet, whether it's the Chinese government talking about what it claims to do for Tibetan uh, people and their language, or whether it's the international Tibet movement critiquing what the Chinese state does, uh, both of these parties really agree on a fairly seemingly simple fact that Tibetans speak a single language. What this actually does, unfortunately, is silence the voices of approximately a quarter of a million Tibetan people inside the People's Republic of China who speak languages other than Tibetan, right? So they're Tibetan people who speak languages other than Tibetan. Uh, Their voices have really been silenced in these debates. And I've been now speaking about these issues for five or more years in public platforms. And uh, when I began talking about these issues online, it was just a real troll fight every step of the way. Everywhere that I tried to talk about these issues, I was uh, framed as being anti-Tibetan, uh, pro-Chinese, uh, pro-oppression. And at one point while I was working on this research, I came across a book by Timothy Snyder about the history of nationalisms in Eastern Europe. And he opens the book with this wonderful uh, metaphor where he discusses the value of engaging with these kind of uh, strident, violent, debilitating criticisms. And he talks about it as being like dancing with a skeleton, right? That it's your decision to engage with these people that animates them. And so in that sense, I've found the capacity sometimes to disengage from those people, to treat them with silence as being very productive in trying to advance the cause of political discussions that are more inclusive, more expansive, more reflective of the diversity of people and the predicaments that they face. So again, we come back to this issue of silence can sometimes be a form of resistance, not engaging with the critique which is predictable, aggressive, and bad faith can also be a form of resistance. So what I've just been talking about and what you've mentioned is with the case of the Turks, I think, gives us pause to think about and pay attention to the complexities of silence. Silence might be the last thing that we hear when we're engaging in communication, but it's often some of the most uh, rich, complex, and uh, pregnant parts of any communicative exchange, right? Are the silences that we're hearing an act of suppression, an act of resistance? Are people being denied a voice or are they refusing to give their voice? Um, Who are the people who are speaking and not speaking? How are they making each other speak and not speak? Uh, These are some of the complexities that we have to try and unpack when we're listening to what is and isn't being said in any kind of communication. I agree. And I think when you're watching the TV or listening to the radio, you're really thinking about, well, who's not there? Who haven't I heard? It's often very easy to hear the people who have the loudest voices. Yep. What 
could have been said but wasn't said. Right. So figuring out how to hear the silences and see the invisible seem to be really important skills in analysing political uh, communications of all sorts. Thanks for listening. This is Adrian Jones, a historian at La Trobe University. And I'm Gerald Roach, an anthropologist at uh, La Trobe University. You can find me on Twitter at G. Joseph Roach. You can't find me on Twitter, but you can find me on the website at La Trobe University. And you can also look at the program notes. Thanks for listening. Thanks very much. Crisis in Communication is produced by Courtney Carthy for the Political Communications Researchers at La Trobe University. I am Andrea Carson, an Associate Professor in Politics and Media at La Trobe and co-founder of the La Trobe Political Communications Research Group, sponsoring this series. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.